uh, I was able to rely on the tried and true lick your finger and wipe it off remedy, which actually in this case was effective. I don't think it is for And rewards. tasty. <laughs> and tasty, too. You can't prove it. The Docket, episode 50. My name is Michael Sprout. Hi, I'm Emily Tammon. Hey, Emily Tammon, how are you? I'm good. I'm tired, but I'm good. I think that's what I say every time, but it's the fact. You have nothing going on. I have nothing going on whatsoever to speak of. Uh, tomorrow, November 29th, don't know when this is going to go live, but tomorrow is my nomination meeting in Ottawa Vanier, um, where I hope to be selected as the NDP candidate for the upcoming federal by-election in the riding. Being the only candidate, I'm feeling relatively good about my chances. What about you? If you aren't selected, I think um, paper bag time. (laughs) That's definitely paper bag time. So there's that. looking forward to that um there is you know exams coming up so i'm working on putting my exam together get my final lectures together one of our children has a birthday party coming up christmas is on the horizon there's a couple things going on we've almost eradicated all illness from our house yes there was a bit of an unfortunate pinworm incident and i would recommend that our listeners not google what that is you don't want to know no yeah and a um smoothie rash Yes, there was a smoothie rash incident uh, at the height of the pinworm and that was accompanied by a strep throat infection. I mistook a uh, stain uh, from a smoothie on our five-year-old's forehead for a ringworm fungal infection because I think I was just seeing infections everywhere. It had been there for like four days. I think it was two, but still. Uh, I was able to rely on the tried and true lick your finger and wipe it off remedy, which actually in this case was effective. I don't think it is for true And tasty. <laughs> and tasty, too. Um, another thing that's happened since last we recorded was a quasi-apocalyptic event, uh, namely the election of he who shall not be named to the U.S. presidency. Yeah, we um, watched the election. Uh, It was disappointing. It was disappointing. (laughs) That would be an understatement. And you were in complete denial for a good chunk of the evening when I was trying to tell you, dear God, this is not looking good. You said, I I think you thought we were actually watching a reality TV show. You said, this is false drama. (laughs) This is like, no. I was wrong. He won. You were wrong. He won. And it's going to be a disaster. (laughs) <laughs> As, uh, to quote Donald Trump, it's a disaster. It is a disaster. We took um, the day off after. We had to take a day off basically to recover, to attempt to figure out what the heck had happened, which we I don't think we've still been successful. We did watch like 30 episodes of The West Wing that day, so we felt better that way. It was uplifting. We thought, you know, mm, President Bartlett could be president. Um, but I think, I mean, we've had some pretty good talks and... and read a lot of of stuff on Trump. But I mean, I think there actually has been some good discussion that's uh, come out of it, you know, uh, on the progressive left of the political spectrum about what went wrong and sort of some of the failings of a lot of the policies of the left and what has and hasn't been done. And I think that is sort of good. 
Well, when you say policies of the left, you're, I take it, describing the Democratic Party as left, which is um, generous, probably. Uh, I think the, the U.S. two-party system doesn't provide much of a space for the left. Uh, as we define it in Canada, and of course in other places, it's even further left probably than we are here. But no, you're right. I think um, hopefully, you know, progress is not linear. Sometimes you do, in fact, take steps backward before you can take the large leaps forward. And so let's hope that um, the Democrats seize upon this opportunity to not just think about what their strategy will be in the next campaign, but to actually think about what kind of thoughtful policies they could be proposing to Americans that would actually improve their lived realities um, in a significant way. Yeah, my suggestion would be to stop using bland buzzwords like growing the economy and strengthening the middle class um, and actually start doing things for those who are left behind. Because um, if you're you know, living below the poverty line or you're disadvantaged or you're part of a marginalized community, growing the economy usually does sweet fuck all for you. Yeah, and actually to tie in a little bit to the theme of our podcast more generally, I mean, I do have real big concerns about what's going to happen to the U.S. justice system. It's already been plagued by very problematic systemic issues uh, from over-incarceration to race-based policing and um, you know other issues that um, even with um, an administration that, you know, I mean, I understand there are you know federal and state responsibilities and other things, but um, this is really, really problematic. You know, the war on drugs and a lot of the things we've talked about on this podcast where we've, you know, we've said things like in Canada, we should be looking at 20 years of U.S. experience and, you know, learning from those lessons and having policies that go in another direction. And to think that the U.S. itself um, is now also probably on a path of serious regression when it comes to uh, justice policy is, is very disappointing, I think, I'm sure for many in that country. Well, and, and I'm worried about in, in Canada because I think the U.S. election uh, maybe taught us that looking at things relatively in like equal airtime and equivalencies between, you know, Trump's wrongdoings and the problems with uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, I, I think maybe the election exposed flaws in that sort of way of thinking. And I think we might be falling into some you know, national uh, expression of that, where we look south of the border and Trump is so apparently awful that we can sort of miss and explain away some of the failings with, you know, our current progressive liberal government. Um, and I think that's some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, about surveillance and surveillance state and, you know, grabbing low-hanging fruit and not being necessarily as inclusive and progressive as, as you probably should. No, that's right. I think that's a good segue. But just before we move on, I would also say that, you know, it's it's easy for us to look at ourselves and our, you know, bright, shiny, happy rainbows and sunny ways prime minister and say, you know, well, we're not like that. But, you know, Americans were eight years ago where we are right now. And uh, I think that's something that we need to remember because, um, you know, the, this is something that is possible in Canada. And I think everybody, not just the so-called progressive left, but everybody has an interest in making sure that we don't allow conditions to develop um, where we would be giving a pathway to power to someone like Trump. Yeah, I think when your policies, when you're <clears throat> elected into office on, you know, promises of, you know, yes, we can and hope and better is possible and, um, you know, 
progressive uplifting unifying messages like that and then you're in power for eight years and you know you don't deliver on those promises and you leave a large section of your population behind and you sort of you know backtrack to corporate interests and and you know renege on on key democratic reforms that you promised uh, electoral reform in Canada to be one for example you know you maybe shouldn't be surprised eight years later when you know you've lost the credibility and you know a Trump-like person can slide into power Here's hoping not. All right, so let's talk about some spying. Let's do it. All right, so <clears throat> the first thing, let's talk about a federal court of appeal case. It was reported on in Canada, but I, I don't think as widely as as perhaps it, it should have been. And I think that some of the air maybe went out of it because of Trump, because this happened, you know, uh, shortly before the U.S. election. But CSIS, or Canadian Security Intelligence Service, uh, something like that, um, <laughs> They were caught lying to a federal court judge. And it was a rather scathing uh, rebuke of, of, you know, our our spy service that was released by the federal court. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of um, parts of this to unpack. I think actually the point you made just in opening about how um, it may not have received a lot of airtime just had me reflecting on, excuse me, the... um, the media bubble issue that I think is something that people have talked about because I'm I'm thinking to myself, oh no, it was really widely reported. I you know, but I consume a certain kind of media. I follow a certain kind of people on social media, and I think it's just an important thing that we be keeping top of mind. It's important to um, acknowledge that um, sometimes things like this don't get a lot of coverage. But anyway, that's an aside. So let's do a super super high flyover of it because the decision is incredibly long and incredibly complicated. Um, but let's the nuts and bolts. And I'm sorry, Craig Forsey's expert in this area, professor. If you're listening, you're going to be rolling over in your grave. Uh, you're going to be dying. <laughs> He's alive. Then rolling over <laughs> in your grave. Um, and as always, we're grateful to Craig for um, putting his thoughtful analysis out yeah. there into the world. And if you want to know more, look what Craig's had to say about it. Yeah, we'll throw some links up to his stuff. But so basically, CSIS has been involved in sort of covert surveillance activity on a number of um, national threats, people of interest with permission from the court. And as part of that surveillance, the lawyers for CSIS go to court and it's just them and the judge. So it's an ex parte proceeding, meaning that only one side is there, which is very unusual in our adversarial system. But But common in the context of judicial authorizations for things like search warrants. Yeah, because if the suspected terrorist or, you know, bad guy's lawyer was there, he might stop talking on the phone and you wouldn't intercept these things. But in the context of an ex parte, so only one side proceeding, there's sort of a heightened duty of candor and honesty that you have to have with the court. And don't laugh at me because I pronounce candor <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Condor? Um, so there's a heightened level of sort of transparency and openness and tr- truthiness that you have to have uh, with the court. And um, as part of sort of the last 10 years of you know various countless surveillance operations and lawful intercepts, the court has been asking CSIS what sort of information have you been getting? Are you only keeping and retaining sort of information and data in relation to the specific people that we've authorized you, us, the court has authorized you to to spy on? And CSIS had said, yeah, yeah, that's all we're doing. Wah, wah. Not so much. <laughs> 
what actually has been happening is CSIS was intercepting data not only of the target, but of everyone the target spoke to uh, and, you know, out from that in the spider web. So, right. so for example, if the target of the um, investigation has a completely innocent conversation with a third party that doesn't further the investigation in any way, rather than disposing of that information, CSIS was retaining uh, to the extent that it had this information, you know, the name of the third party or any information that they had just kind of storing it away for a rainy day. You know, this could be relevant someday. This is someone who maybe knows in some limited capacity our target. And we want to keep keep their personal information in our roster after it, telling the court they weren't doing that. And it's unclear, you know, how far out from the middle of the web CSIS goes. Is it just the person that the target talks to or is it other associated people and who they talk to and who they talk to, what sort of data? It turns out it wasn't just associated data, as CSIS was calling, but it was metadata. So um, your name, your IP address, your location, your GPS, who you contacted, and other information that relate not to the content of the email or text or telephone call, but information about the communication. And it's inevitable when you're intercepting communications or even searching a house in some cases that you are going to inadvertently capture information that's not covered by the scope of the authorization. And there's an expectation, especially in circumstances where the target may never know that this type of information was targeted, uh, was collected, and therefore never be in a position um, to challenge it. Um, It's very, very problematic that CSIS would be retaining this kind of inadvertently captured or outside the scope of the authorization information and then retaining it and then lying about the fact that they were retaining it. And it's important to note that, you know, metadata or like the information about the communication itself is often sort of minimized by people who are into sort of a big brother police state by saying, you know, it's not the contents of the communication. It's just sort of like looking at the outside of a letter. You're not opening the letter and looking at it. But I mean, it's been accepted in our court, including our Supreme Court. It's been written about everywhere. And I mean, I think it's not in not not controversial at all, that metadata can actually be more revealing about uh, someone's activities, someone's patterns, someone's communications than, than the actual contents themselves. No, that's right. And I think when we're already in a sort of policy environment where there are many who feel that um, agencies like CSIS have too much power um, to surreptitiously intrude on Canadians' privacy, um, to, and, and that there's too little scrutiny of their activities, that to think that even in circumstances where their activities are being scrutinized by returning before the court and engaging, albeit in an ex parte manner, um, with the court on these issues, to, to find out that, in fact, they've been exceeding the scope of their authorization and being dishonest about it is really, really troubling and I think underscores the need for enhanced transparency and accountability uh, among these types of agencies. Yeah, and I mean... One could say that, you know, maybe CSIS and their lawyers um, uh, just didn't misinterpreted the court's rulings or didn't understand the scope of the information or didn't even really use it, just sort of like stored it away in a dusty shelf. So, Which seems to be what they're saying. Yeah, the which isn't right because the court <laughs> found that CSIS was actually inputting all of this information. Um, and again, we don't know how much, but, you know, let's assume it's thousands and thousands and thousands 
and more of information on thousands and thousands of innocent people who have done nothing wrong into a giant, powerful database, the ODAC, which is a powerful program which the court says processes metadata resulting in a product imbued with a degree of insight otherwise impossible to glean from simply looking at granular numbers. Um, the end product is intelligence, which reveals specific intimate details on the life and environment of persons that CSIS is investigating. It draws links between various sources and enormous amounts of data that no human being would be capable of. Which is fine if it's in relation to data that's been lawfully intercepted. But this is data that's not lawfully intercepted. And again, it's not just you know putting punch cards in the basement. It's using powerful programs to actually draw connections through large amounts of data that is improperly obtained in respect to people who have done absolutely nothing wrong. That's right. And that's sort of scary. Yeah. And we live in a democracy where, as citizens, we enjoy a right to privacy and we expect a limit on the intrusion of the state into our personal lives. So as much as I do see there is a certain seductive attractiveness to the idea that, well, maybe this means they catch someone in their net that wouldn't otherwise be caught. But I think that naively um, underestimates the actual real loss and significant impact, especially if we allow it to go um, without accountability, that the state will always have an interest in seeking more and more and more powers. And... um, it's important that we keep them within the legal limits um, of the power that you know our constitution imposes on them. Well, and the ironic thing here is that as the state is collecting more information on its citizens, they're lying to the court and being more and more secretive about what they're doing. So it's not nearly a two-way street, and there's that huge power imbalance between the state and the individuals. No, and it also you know raises concerns for you know whatever kind of accountability measure Parliament intends to impose. <laughs> Um, in terms of reporting requirements and parliamentary committees or, you know, you know, whatever it ends up being, when we now have direct evidence that CSIS is prepared to go before a judge and potentially lie, uh, that's a problem. And actually, that leads me to just quickly um, an unrelated topic, if we were more or less ready to move on from this. Sure. It just It's reminding me of um, something that we hadn't flagged to talk about, but just super quickly, which is the... Um, the revelations in relation to the Montreal police um, and spying on journalists, <laughs> because again, um, just quick, quick background. This is recent revelations that, with warrants and wiretap authorizations, uh, police were surveilling journalists in the hopes of revealing basically moles within the police. So they're the target of their investigation is a police officer, but they suspect this police officer is sharing information with the media. Therefore, they're surveilling the media in order to figure out who the police officer is. And not like information like giving away confidential information on informants and stuff like that. One of uh, the journalists, a warrant was obtained because um, it's actually sort of interesting and a, a bit tangled, but the mayor of Montreal had got a parking ticket or some sort of like traffic infraction and it had been ripped up or he paid it I think had been disposed of Um, but a journalist made a couple calls about this parking ticket never wrote a story on it but the mayor or the chief of police actually ended up calling the mayor or the mayor called the chief of police and then a warrant was issued 
to intercept his private communication to find out how he obtained information about the, the yeah about the mayor's parking ticket. So this isn't you know. We, really have a, we have a rat. We have like, you know, the mobs infiltrated the police. So we need to figure out risk. what's going on. This is about like Petty. the mayor, the chief of police, and the mystery about who leaked information about the mayor getting a parking ticket. Yeah. And the reason that the our previous discussion just made me think of this was also about ex parte applications. Because uh, once again, these are scenarios where the police are going to before a court um, without you know, anyone else being represented, including the innocent journalist who's not, in fact, um, suspected of any offense, uh, that side not being properly represented. And, um, you know, there was a lot of outrage when these revelations first came to light um, that was directed at the judiciary specifically. Why are judges giving, you know, these warrants? And the reality is we don't know, I don't think for sure in many of these cases, that the media, that the judge even knew the person was a journalist necessarily. I mean, we don't know because we, at this point, um, and, and, you know, now there's going to be a commission of inquiry and all well, of these and issues are going to be Well, we're the information to obtain that warrant. So we'll see what was actually said. I mean, maybe there was misrepresentations in that, in that, you know, information to obtain the warrant to spy on the journalist. Yeah, no, we don't know. And we, you know, we obviously need better rules in place to govern when these types of authorizations can and should be granted. But it just reminds me, this is another example of where um, ex parte applications um, can be very problematic, although, you know, admittedly necessary in some cases. Well, and I mean, our Supreme Court found a bunch of uh, terror legislation unconstitutional because of the ex parte nature of some of it. And what the Supreme Court actually did was say, um, you know, maybe there should be special advocates. And this was actually incorporated into some legislation where there's not a lawyer for the party, but like sort of a neutral third party special advocate who's there to raise issues uh, with respect to in the national security stuff, super top secret information. And maybe there should be that for a warrant. You have a judge there, you have the police there, and then you have sort of a special advocate who doesn't have any connection to any parties who can look over and flag some issues that might slip past the, the justice of the peace or judge or, you know, flag some extra concerns to, to make sure that there isn't any abuse of the process. Yeah, and that's certainly something that's already being recommended, at least in the context of where the target is a journalist. I mean, there are those that are saying, you know, at a minimum, but I think you're right in all cases, it's something that's worth considering because our system is so premised on an adversarial exchange that even for judges, it's very uncomfortable. They're used to having both parties represented when they're um, determining an issue. And even where a party is seeking to be candid and open and transparent, you do get um, tied up in your case, you know, and you, you don't always see the other side so clearly. And the idea of just having someone who's there to scrutinize um, but from through the lens of the target as opposed to the state um, is definitely an interesting one, but surely would be very costly and cumbersome too. It wouldn't be cost. I wouldn't charge very much. No. You should, you should just get me to do it. Okay. I'll review every single one. Every single one. Okay. That's cool. Well, we've got a solution. So there's a there solution on the table. We'll call it the Sprat, the special Sprat. Advocate. Advocate. Special. That's great. That's, we're good. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Solved. Moving on. Great. We solved that one. Um, Let's talk about the RCMP. The Mounties. Um, guess what they want? More powers. More powers. <laughs> because um, terrorists, pornographers, evil people, goblins, trolls, villains are getting away with a lot of crimes because of the internet. Is that the case? It is. Hey, guess who wrote about that? Was it you? It was me. <laughs> 
it was me. I wrote about it. You did. Um, so I wrote an iPolitics piece on, on this. Um, a couple weeks ago, the RCMP granted unprecedented access to the CBC and Toronto Star and presented them with, I'm sure, a random selection of 10 case files where they said uh, investigations were frustrated and charges weren't laid because people have passwords and people encrypt their information and it would be a lot easier if uh, there was backdoors built into um, to phones so they could intercept communications more easily and if there was laws that compelled people to hand over their passwords. You know what else would make policing easier? If people just had to let them into their house to search their home. That would make policing a lot easier. <laughs> or we could have cameras everywhere in every room of the house. Um, only saying. to be accessed with the proper warrant. Oh, oh absolutely. It would record all the time, but only uh, if there's a warrant would it be accessed. So this is what the RCMP uh, did to make its case, the case that you know it's been making all the time for the last you know number of years. But this time they sort of co-opted the media, uh, gave them exclusive access, and showed them you know 10 hand-picked files uh, where they said that their investigation was being frustrated. It was uh, self-serving and a little bit Orwellian, I think. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think this is an important point that could be easily missed. It's not just the fact that they want these powers, but that the way they're going about trying to influence public opinion on the issue is to probably, in a skewed way, present the media with stories that support their position, which I guess is what all people do to some extent. But I think, you know, if the RCMP has a case to make, it should make it before policymakers on the basis of evidence um, and evidence that demonstrates not just that their job would be easier, but that in a real and significant way, um, they're unable um, to to circumvent these things and that it's, it's actually impacting on serious investigations <laughs> um, because otherwise I really just don't think it's appropriate at all yeah so i mean they want there's a list of things that they wanted but the three that are i think the most concerning is they want internet service providers and telecommunication companies to build in back doors to all of their systems so they can more easily intercept information which also means that they would be more susceptible presumably to hacking and other things but and i'm sure they do it for free so i don't think our already <laughs> exorbitant canadian uh, prices on our cell phones would be impacted at all oh no um the other thing uh, that they want is legislation to force individuals to give up uh their passwords to encryption keys or to other sort of data encryption or, or password protections and i think we've talked about this previously or at least i remember commenting to the Globe and Mail at one point because the Globe had an editorial about this. It predates this particular discussion, but where they were sort of implying, well, it's no different than a judge just granting a warrant that you, you know, that they can come into your house. But in fact, the warrant does not require the homeowner to unlock the door. It can authorize a third party locksmith to come and break the lock. It can authorize the police to you know, break down the door, but there is no provision for an accused person to incriminate or a suspect or a target to incriminate him or herself um, in any way, including by providing access to the door. Although we did talk about it because uh, there was a constitutional challenge that was abandoned when border security wanted someone to okay. hand over the password in their phone, and uh, there was a charter challenge. It was a really interesting case, and the person inexplicably pled guilty and didn't proceed with the challenge, which was sort of disappointing. True, but I would just borders say the different. border is different. Yes. But yes. Um, and we generally don't 
encourage the state to compel people to provide information against themselves. It's a long-standing rule of fairness, and it's enshrined in our charter. So um, the last thing, or, or one of the other things that the police want, is... Um, to have complete access to subscriber information from telecommunications companies without any judicial approval, without any warrant. Um, and that's something I want to talk about. Yes. Because that is akin to metadata, the your IP address, the metadata that is associated with your subscriber information, the information uh, connecting you to that IP address is easily obtainable with a warrant. Um, thanks to Bill C-13, the cyberbullying bill, just on reasonable suspicion, so you don't need reasonable and probable grounds. It's a much reduced standard to to allow police to get that information. Um, Before uh, there was legislation uh, uh, like that, and before this was an issue, the police requested that information over a million times a year. So a million requests every year to telecommunication companies, over a million requests for that information. Um, A large amount of that was phishing expeditions. A large amount of that was information trolling and gathering. And that's problematic. And it's something that despite what the RCMP is doing by trying to generate fear, saying that terrorists and pornographers are getting away with crimes, it's something that that the Canadian public reacted to very strongly. Because that exact same measure, the backdoor uh, access into networks and the wire and the warrantless subscriber information, was proposed in Bill C thirty by the Conservative government when Vic Taves so eloquently said, "You either stand with the child pornographers or you stand with the government." That was in Bill C thirty, which was withdrawn by the government, which had a massive public outcry in which the conservative government... This is, we're talking about the previous government. The previous conservative government said that um, warrantless subscriber information and backdoor access will not form any part of conservative legislation. So this is the conservative government under... Uh, Rob Nicholson said this, the justice minister at the time, said that those measures are so beyond the pale that even the conservatives won't consider them. And yet now the RCMP is back out trying to soften up the public for undoubtedly what is going to be liberal legislation to ratchet back privacy protections. That is the prediction about what's going to happen. That is what's going to happen. Well, if you do want to get your preferred policy out of the liberals, the best way you do it is go about getting, is to go about getting public opinion on your side in terms of, you know, rallying a kind of populist outcry. So, I mean, I don't know what will come of this. I hope that cooler heads will prevail and that the liberals will look at the experience that the conservatives had when they attempted to introduce similar legislation, as you've just said, and we'll see not only that it's a wrongheaded policy choice, but also that it is something that the public doesn't want. Uh, but the, the really sorry to interrupt you, but the really scary part is the CBC and the Toronto Star has already gone down this road because they commissioned some public opinion polls. And with questions like, do you think that there should be complete and total privacy on the Internet? The majority of people said, no, there shouldn't be complete and total yeah. privacy. Frame the question that way. The questions in these opinion polls were framed so broadly and so poorly that it seems that the public is being softened up. To, to get on side with the RCMP. No, and it's an argument of expedience, and it's an argument that diminishes privacy, and it's uh, it's scary. No, and also, I mean, we've said this before, but I'm 
obviously I've had my own <laughs> issues in this in totally other ways. I'm in favor of consulting with the public and hearing what the public wants. But when it comes to um, you know, attempts to justify new state powers that are dancing very close to, if not over the line of what our constitution allows, then we have a serious problem because the public is not entitled to have what it wants when it exceeds constitutionally what the government can give. And so I don't think it's helpful. And this is what we've seen on the government's national security review, where they're doing this widespread consultation. What kind of powers do you think CESA should have? What kind of powers should the RCMP have? Well, it's all fine and good to ask Canadians what they think about that. But at the end of the day, some of the parameters are set by the Constitution and not by what the public wants. And so, you know, that's something that has to be obviously kept very much in mind. The Constitution is meant to constrain the power of the majority to constrain the power of government. If it was always just majority rule, I think that we would not be in a great place. Well, in the 2015 election campaign, the number of times I was asked in relation to the so-called NICOB debate, the question being whether a woman should be allowed to wear, to be veiled uh, in the course of her citizenship ceremony, the number of times it was put to me, well, the majority of Canadians favor this um, policy. The majority of Canadians think that a woman shouldn't be allowed to cover her face when taking a citizenship um, oath. That's what I would say. I would say that's why we have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, is to protect vulnerable minorities from the will of the majority who may sometimes not understand the particular, um, in this case, religious context in which the issue arises. And I'm grateful that we have um, a constitutionally entrenched document like that that does impose limits on state power. Um, the two really good quotes, if I do say so myself, that I used in my piece that... that <laughs> You're not quoting yourself here? No, no. Um, I, I really like um, what Cardinal, Cardinal Richelieu said in like the 1600s. Um, he said, if one were to give me six lines written by the hand of the most honest man, I would find something in it to have them hanged. Mm -hmm. Privacy is important and a space for dissent and private thought and, um, you know, railing against authority and having ideas that might be um, not mainstream is really important. Um, and, and the other line that, um, that I really like is uh, a line from uh, Glenn Greenwald when he was uh, delivering a, a TED Talk. And um, he said that, you know, people that have a mindset of I've got nothing to hide, so I don't care. Like, it's easy to give away someone else's privacy, but by sort of falling down this trap of, you know, if you have nothing to hide, then I guess you shouldn't mind the state looking into your business. Um, he said that by saying that you've agreed to make yourself such a harmless and unthreatening and uninteresting person that you actually don't have any fear of the government knowing what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's always so great when people can articulate um, in ways that resonate with people why privacy is important. Because the, the I have nothing to hide argument that prevails among a segment of law, the law-abiding population. Like, I um, am completely law-abiding. I don't have anything to hide in the sense that I don't have anything that I don't want disclosed that would um, expose criminality on my part, 
but I do have things to hide. I, I like the idea that I can have a zone of privacy in my life. And I also recognize that I'm much less vulnerable to having my privacy intruded because of certain privileges that I have. And there are other segments of our population and in our community who are much more vulnerable, even though they're equally law-abiding as we are, um, because of the color of their skin, the country of their origin. And so, like you said, I mean, I think when you when you frame it in terms of how much of someone else's freedom are you willing to give up, it's a pretty different analysis. I think there is a reason that even law-abiding people have curtains on their windows. I mean, if you have nothing to hide in your house, if you're not doing anything wrong, then, you know, why have curtains? It's these are easy sort of analogies that 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 I think expose the real you know logic flaw that proponents of the surveillance state have, and you know as we've seen in Canada, even with Bill C fifty one, once you give up privacy, once you give powers to the state, even when you have a progressive, in this case liberal government led by Justin Trudeau, who said that they were going to take measures to fix it once they got in power. It hasn't been fixed yet. When powers are given to the state, when privacy is lost, those are hard to reclaim. Agreed. All right, so let's move on and talk about something completely different. Mm-hmm. Anal sex. <laughs> if our listeners could see your facial expression, you were just waiting for your moment to throw that out there. Yes, let's talk about anal sex. Sorry, that is uh, a very unprofessional way to, to talk about Um, a very complex issue. And immature. Let's talk about Section 159 of the Criminal Code. Let's do that. Let's do this in a very legislative approach. So um, it would would surprise you to know that um, it's illegal to engage in anal sex in Canada? Uh, I'm a professor of the criminal law, and so uh, you do not surprise me with your anecdotes drawn from the criminal code. But I think most people would be surprised to know Uh, Not so much that it's illegal, because it's not in fact illegal, but that an offense describing that conduct is still found in print and online in our criminal code. Um, We've talked about sort of zombie laws and, and laws that are in the criminal code that been found to be unconstitutional or repetitive or uh, completely unnecessary and this is uh, one of them and it's one that um, the liberal government has uh, introduced a bill to repeal bravo it's a law that says that every person who engages in the act of anal intercourse is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 10 years or is guilty uh, of an offense punishable on summary conviction except if you're a husband or wife and it's in private or any two persons uh, whom is 18 years of age or more. So not all anal sex is criminalized in the criminal code, but a lot of it is. And a lot of it is that, um, you know, takes into account or is it has gender and sexual orientation uh, prejudice baked into it. Yeah. So, of course... Uh, do we have? Do we take issue with the government repealing this provision? No. No, it's been found to do be unconstitutional. We, do we applaud the government for doing it? I guess so. But this is exactly like the discussion we had last time or recently regarding the victim fine surcharge legislation. It's great. It's good policy. It should be done. Why on earth, at the same time, they haven't at a minimum repealed Section 230 of the Criminal Code, which rose to great prominence in the context of a discussion we previously had, where 
a judge in Alberta convicted a person um, of second-degree murder, relying in entirely on a provision that was found to be unconstitutional and 30 years ago. Did we update that? Um, because the judge in the Vader case found him guilty of second-degree murder based on this section, and um, there was arguments by counsel, and the judge substituted uh, a finding of manslaughter. I think we did. I know I, I talked about it with did. my students. I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast, and I know tomorrow I'm talking to my students about Section 230 of the Criminal Code and the specific cases that struck it down. But I'm just saying, it's like... There are many, many offenses in the criminal code just like that. Now, I will say one possible difference between Section 230 and this provision is that this provision is actually invoked with surprising regularity for a provision that's been found to be unconstitutional. I'm charged with it right now. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, the Vader case uh, in Alberta was an example of Section 230 being invoked. There are well-known examples of other provisions, but I would say this provision is more frequently invoked. And in fact, at one point, um, a criminal defense lawyer that I met at the NDP convention who practices um, in Saskatchewan had advised me that this was a provision that he found people charged with routinely. So to that extent, okay, fine. If it's, I mean, that's to the discredit of law enforcement. No, no, definitely not. I mean, um, but but I'm, so I'm just saying that among the zombie laws on the books, maybe this one is causing a, a little tiny bit more of a problem than some others. And, and it's in a context that is particularly upsetting. And, and, you know, yes, it needs to be addressed. But I'm just saying, like, this is now two bills in recent months that have come forward on the so-called widespread sweeping justice policy agenda that the government has. And while I am in complete agreement that this law should not be on the books, there are many, many more that are just as cut and dry as this, that don't require tinkering. It's, we're not talking medical assistance and dying here. Where Criminal code prohibitions on abortion? Hello? <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't, I, I don't applaud the government for this because I take this as the bare minimum that they should be doing. And there are many other things that fall in the same category as this provision that should be dealt with at the same time. Yeah, so, I mean, there's this Section 230, which, you know, resulted in, in a spectacular clusterfuck. And just an embarrassment and a and an I mean, unnecessary um, stress for the victim's family, you know, just that everything. That erodes confidence in the administration of justice. Then you have this provision, the anal intercourse, but then you also have, you know, the abortion provisions. You have crime comics. You have. Uh, I don't even know if the the prohibition against possessing or disseminating crime comics has even ever been found unconstitutional because it's because too ridiculous. People aren't charged with it. But. Seriously, your Batman comic, your Dick, actually your Dick Tracy comic, is actually illegal. How about practicing witch? No, sorry, fraudulently practicing witchcraft. There's. 50 or 60 or 70 sections of the criminal code that are ridiculous or repetitive or stray into areas of social engineering that shouldn't be in the criminal code at all. But there are definitely a dozen provisions that are clearly and have been found to be unconstitutional that remain in the criminal code. And this legislation that there was so much backslapping for uh, yeah. on on uh, the part of the government could have been... I mean, the legislation said it is repealed. That is what the legislation, this new legislation does. They could have just added a few other sections of the criminal code to that same bill. The following provisions are revealed. Section they could have done it on day one in government. It's the... You don't need 
exhaustive study or legislative drafting to repeal something that has been found unconstitutional. Entirely. It's cut and dry. This is the lowest. This isn't even, this fruit isn't even hanging on the tree. It's rotting on the ground. And I mean, I hope to God that this isn't used as some sort of distraction technique to say that they've actually done something with respect to criminal justice. That's right. Meanwhile, the marijuana file just ticks along. (laughs) It's... It's there needs to be some things done. And uh, I mean, we're seeing some of the problems with respect to having a bloated criminal code, no um, no law reform commission, no unified sort of criminal procedure, because we're seeing, you know, court cases and court dockets expanding at an ever alarming rate over prosecution, which leads to actual harms like murder cases being thrown out, which is something we should talk about next time. Maybe. Yes, we will. And even if any of my students are listening, we, we talked this year about um, the fault elements of crimes and how generally the court has to determine what they are without reference to actual words in the statute. And we read a Supreme Court decision where um, Justice Maldaber basically says, please, Parliament, please, 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 would you just tell us what the fault elements are, what the mens rea is for an offense? Because um, this is the type of, I mean, that's the type of justice reform that would require years and years of careful study by a law reform commission or an arm's length or quasi-arm's length um, body that could really dig into every section of the code and seek to articulate some of what the common law has had to fill in. Um, and, you know, that would be a good thing. But do you know who they could hire to do that? Who? Me. You'd love that. It'd be sort of fun. There are I would many own. people. There are many people who would love to do that. And in fact, there was a time in our history when we had a law reform commission, when lots of bright young lawyers fresh out of law school or a couple of years of practice or master's degrees went to work for the public service to be a part of, you know, the meaningful thought that goes into justice reform, not fly by the seat of your pants, you know, kick out the, the low-hanging fruit. Like, let's really um, find a way to do this properly. And it really is becoming more and more urgent. But through eliminating the Law Reform Commission, we saved uh, $10 million over five years. So, so there's that. <laughs> right. There's that. Um, anything else on anal sex? <laughs> you just wanted to say anal sex again. That's very rude. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> It says it. Oh, sorry. Anal intercourse. That's right. At I least be proper term. precise. Um, no, I have nothing to add. All right. There's lots of other stuff we can talk about. Many things. So what do you want to talk about next time? Some stuff about things. Let's Law. talk about court delays. Court delays it is. Murder charges being thrown out. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. That did happen recently. We should definitely talk about that. I was also thinking to our making a murderer fans. <laughs> Oh, we should totally talk about the Brendan Dashi. Got bail, didn't get bail. Got bail, revoked, didn't get bail. Those bastards. See, if we just wait long enough, it will all resolve itself. (laughs) If we had done that podcast, it would have been totally useless because his bail has been revoked, right? That's right. Um, We should definitely do that. And, um, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff. There is. There's many things. So thank you for listening, as always. Until next time. One more thing. And with that sign-off, we're back online. What do you want to add? Um, do you remember when we talked about the Canadian Canada Mint employee who was smuggling gold up his ass out of the Canadian Mint? Uh, yes, I do. I remember it well. Like $300,000 that was secreted in, in his rectum? 
Yes, I remember it like it was yesterday. He was found guilty. He was found guilty. It was it was pretty unlikely that he was going to be acquitted, but we had talked a little bit about the fact that the Mint never seemed to admit or acknowledge or demonstrate that anything had gone missing, but this was a, a strong circumstantial case, <laughs> if ever there was one. So I just thought that that was... I mean, we are talking about anal stuff, so I thought... So you just thought it would be appropriate, appropriate. to... Uh, revive the podcast after my nice succinct sign off so that you could remind everyone that that had happened and I think it's important I'm glad I think full circle follow through it's you good. gotta you gotta f- tie up these loose, loose ends. ends you gotta do it yeah little bow little bow alright see ya see you next time thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song uh oh as our introduction music for more information on the podcast or what you heard on the show today, you can visit the podcast page at michaelspratt.com. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman with an IE, and you can follow me on Twitter at M Spratt. And if you're a fan of the podcast, like it, rate it, share it, spread the word. Thanks for listening. Can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh.